Welcome to season three of Sorting Pen, the California Cattlemen podcast. Every day, the California Cattlemen's Association is sorting through the issues impacting California's ranching families and producers. To communicate those issues, discuss solutions, and keep ranchers current on the hot topics, CCA leadership developed this podcast and is continuing it in 2023. In each episode, we will be talking with CCA leadership and leading experts on issues specific to ranching and producing beef in California. Tune in every other Monday to hear updates on legislative and regulatory fronts in Sacramento, deep dives into current events, challenges, and more. It's been a great start to March as far as precipitation goes. Hopefully, wherever you are listening from, you are enjoying the snow or the rain and looking forward to some warmer days coming soon and also some green grass. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sorting Pin. If you've been with us the last few episodes, you know that we've had multiple conversations from the 2023 Cattle Industry Convention meetings in New Orleans. If you missed any of those, you can go back and listen at any time. Today, we're bringing it home a little, though, and we're back in Sacramento with our first legislative update of the year. For those of you that don't track the legislature closely, the bill introduction deadline for this session has come and gone. That deadline was February 17th. So we now know all of the bills that have been introduced. Well, we know kind of what they are. We'll go into that more. But joining me to talk through what's happened so far in this session is still very early on. Um, but we do have some updates to share at this point. But joining me to do that is no stranger to the podcast. And that's CCA's Vice President of Government Affairs, Kirk Wilbur. Thanks for having me on again, Katie. Of course. Thanks for um, making time out of your schedule to be on the podcast. We've got a few specific issues we were talking with our officers about that are kind of rising to the top already out of this session. Like I said, it is very early on. Uh, Water is one of those. Methane is one of those. A bill sponsored by the Animal Defense Fund. So we're going to cover those on the podcast today, but then end on a positive note with some of the good things coming out of the legislature so far that we're tracking. So Kirk, let's go over just how many you're tracking already and kind of lay the groundwork of what you're seeing in this session. Yeah, so you mentioned that the bill introduction deadline for this year was February 17th. That was the date by which any bill that's going to move forward this legislative year had to be filed. By that date, by the end of that day, 2,634 bills had been introduced in the Assembly and Senate. Every single one of those has at least had a cursory review by myself and Jason Bryant, our contract lobbyist. Of those, we're actively tracking about 75 bills that may have some impacts on the cattle ranching industry. That list will certainly change. Some of those bills will fall off because they're not likely to move, or it turns out they don't actually impact us. There's also roughly 800 intent bills and nearly 500 spot bills. Those are both forms of bills that could be substantively amended soon to actually do something that may impact our industry. So there are likely bills that are not yet on our radar that will fall onto our radar pretty soon. One thing I want to say to our listeners before you and I get going talking about specific legislation is, as you've said, it's very early in the legislative session so far. A lot of these bills are not bills that we have yet taken explicit positions in support or opposition or otherwise so far. I will be talking today about concerns we have about certain bills, things we like about certain bills. It's still very early days. We may get clarifications in our initial conversations with authors and committee staff. We may be able to get friendly amendments taken to legislation before they start moving through the committee process. Uh, So there's a lot of work left to do before we take explicit opposition or support positions on certain bills. So I just want folks to know that going into this uh, conversation, you may not hear that we're explicitly opposing something that's very concerning. Don't worry, that may come later. (laughs) 
That's an important clarification. Thanks for making sure that was clear, Kirk. I just wanted to note real quick, Kirk said 2,634 bills. And I just want to pause and say, if you're not a member of CCA or you need to remember why you are a member, that's a large number of bills to go through. There's some wild ideas always introduced every session. And I don't think anyone sitting at their ranch wants to go through that many bills and track them every day. So thanks to Kirk and the government affairs team for doing that. And you have a friend that might want to be a member and they don't know why, maybe send them this podcast. Just wanted to be sure to plug that in there because I know it is a lot of work. And like Kirk said, some of them will fall off, but some of them I'm sure you'll engage on more than you would like to. So sounds like I said, water is a big topic. No surprise in California, multiple water bills going on, but there's one specifically already that I know you're taking notes on and already engaging in. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that is Assembly Bill 460, introduced by Rebecca Bauer-Cahan. You mentioned the value of having a government affairs team, and this is one that I think is a good illustration. As many of our members know, I have a law degree. This is the job I do day in and day out, interpreting, understanding legislation. This particular bill took me about four hours just to understand precisely what the bill does, because, of course, there are cross-references within the code sections. Uh, so you really have to drill down deep. And if you don't have a government affairs team doing this work for you, that is going to be really difficult work for the average person to understand how this bill impacts them. So that's why you've got CCA, you've got myself, you've got Billy Gatlin, you've got Jason Bryant, to really help walk you through what the impacts on this bill might be if passed in its current form. But more importantly, so we can try to get that bill amended so that it is a bill that is less concerning for us. So let's talk a little bit about why AB 460 was introduced and what my concerns with the bill are. A lot of folks obviously are aware that we're in the third year of severe drought here in the state of California. Luckily, that is easing up right now with some of our uh, precipitation we've had over the last couple months, but we're still in a drought. Because of that and because of some very well-publicized diversions in violation of curtailment orders that occurred last year, this bill was introduced. And what it mostly seeks to do is increase the penalty amounts for folks who divert water in violation of a curtailment order. Specifically, it would allow the water board to impose $10,000 a day fines for violations of curtailment orders, as well as $5,000 per acre foot of water diverted in violation of that curtailment order. This is a very complicated issue. I sure. don't want to oversimplify why this was introduced, but I mentioned to some much publicized diversions in violation of curtailment orders that occurred last summer. I know this is a more complicated issue than probably a lot of legislators are getting in their briefings, but there was a story about this in the Sacramento Bee last year, and there was an individual who was quoted essentially as saying, it is more cost effective for us to take a fine from the water board and divert water in violation of a curtailment order than to not take that water because our livestock needs that water. I understand the concerns of those ranchers. I understand why they did what they did. But that quote is one that's going to come up over and over again this legislative session. So essentially what you have a lot of legislators trying to do is increase those fines so it is harder for folks to justify diverting water in violation of a curtailment order. So I do suspect that this year there will be many efforts, including this bill, to increase those fine amounts. I suspect those fine amounts will be increased this year. Obviously, we're going to be fighting back against that. We're going to be trying to at least diminish these fines, amend out some other provisions of these bills that I find concerning. But at the end of the day, I think there's a really strong push in the administration and the legislature to in some way increase those fines. What are the fines right now? The fines right now are essentially $500 per day for a violation of a curtailment order. Okay, so they would be increasing, I believe it's about $500 per day. 
uh, they would be increasing 20 times. It would be $10,000. per. Okay. Yeah. So definitely watching that bill. There are several other concerns I want to address about this bill, if if, I, if I may. Again, I, I think that is really what the crux of the bill is and what they're trying to do. There are several other issues that we have with this bill that I would like to see amended out of the bill. There's a lot of work Jason and I have ahead of us. One of those is the scope of this legislation. All of the messaging around this bill has been about violations of curtailment orders. But if you read through the legislation as I have done, these fines would apply for someone who either inadvertently or purposefully diverts in excess of their water right. It would also apply to any violation of a water quality standard. There are already existing authorities for the State Water Resources Control Board to handle those violations. I don't know that they should be absorbed into this bill that should be a little more narrowly focused on curtailments. So that is one concern I have here. Another issue we have with this bill is that it allows any interested party to bring before the State Water Resources Control Board a suggestion that someone has violated a water right or a curtailment order or a water quality standard. Just anyone, like if I'm driving by? Correct. And it doesn't really narrow down who an interested party is or directly define what that term is. So if it's someone who is a downstream user who has a senior water right, I could understand that person bringing a complaint to the water board. If it's a state agency official, likewise. But I think this is really ripe for abuse by some of those radical environmental groups that we have seen try to, for instance, take grazing off of the Stanislaw National Forest. So I'm worried about the scope of who is allowed to bring these issues forth to the State Water Resources Control Board. And finally, one last issue I'll mention on 460 is because of this issue we had in the North last year. Under the existing cease and desist authority that the State Water Resources Control Board has, they can't issue a fine until after a 20-day notice period has happened and the individual that is being fined has been given the opportunity to request a hearing. This bill would allow them to make a determination that there's an emergency and dispense with that 20-day notice period. My concern is that maybe a violation of state and federal due process constitutional rights. So we want to make sure that folks still have some right to notice and some right to hearing no matter what the emergency declared by the State Water Resources Control Board is. So that is several issues with AB 460. Uh, We will be working to make sure most, if not all of those issues are addressed this legislative session. Just wanted to tee those up for our members. Don't get too concerned about this bill. Don't get too caught up in the form it currently is in, because as I've noted, it's early days. But these are concerns we have and concerns that we will be working in the coming weeks and months to address. Every session, there's a bill number, a couple bill numbers that we repeat over and over again. So I think we're going to get tired of hearing about 460 in the next year plus. But lots going on just within that bill. However, I know there's more on water that you're also tracking. Yeah, there are uh, several bills about water, and I'll speak about them a little more briefly than I spoke about AB 460, because again, that is a bill that we have significant concerns about. One that I'll just touch on very briefly is Assembly Bill 1337 by Assemblymember Wicks. That is a bill that actually tries to increase the State Water Resources Control Board's curtailment authority. Currently, most of the curtailments that have happened in the last couple of years have been made under emergency regulation authority in code. The governor obviously has proclaimed a drought emergency, and that gives the State Water Resources Control Board something to hang their hat on in terms of curtailing not just appropriate of water rights, but also pre-1914 and riparian rights. Uh, there was a case last year, I believe, that determined some of the curtailments in 2015 
were illegal because they were made under water code 1052, I believe is the code section. What this bill seeks to do is make it so that pre-1914 rights can be curtailed by the State Water Resources Control Board, even in years where a drought emergency has not been declared by the governor. We've got obvious concerns with that because those are the most senior water rights in the state, and we want to make sure our members' water rights are protected. So that's another bill we'll be engaging on in the water rights sphere this year. I'll just touch very briefly on two more. One is SB Senate Bill 389 by uh, Senator Allen. That is a bill that would allow the State Water Resources Control Board to investigate claims of right for water rights that are pre-1914 or riparian rights. That in and of itself doesn't sound all that concerning. Here's why it is concerning for me. If the State Water Resources Control Board initiates that investigation, the burden of proof is on the water rights holder to demonstrate that they do have a valid water right, whether that's pre-1914 or riparian. If we're talking about a pre-1914 right, that is 100 years old, 150 years old, it can be very difficult for folks to show documentation that they have diverted water under that right every year since they filed an initial statement of diversion and use. And additionally, you can have a water right revoked for five years of non-use. So they'd have to demonstrate that they have at no point gone five years without utilizing that pre-1914 or riparian right. That burden of proof can be very difficult, I think, in practice for a rancher to demonstrate. So we'll be interested in trying to either shift that burden of proof to the State Water Resources Control Board or otherwise address those concerns in the bill. Yeah, that sounds pretty stressful to go back 100 plus years. I think that could be extremely difficult for any water rights holder to meet that burden of proof. Uh, so I'll be interested to see how the author's office thinks that can be gone about and whether we can get any amendments to that bill to alleviate those concerns. Sounds good. I know you have one more you want to share with us on water. <laughs> I, I felt like I had perhaps taken up too much time talking about water legislation, I so think... I was considering omitting it. But there is a proposal. This is California. We talk about water all the time. <laughs> it could just be the whole podcast. There is a proposal, Senate Bill 361 by Senator Dodd, who's a sender we've got a great relationship with. We've sponsored bills with him in the past, uh, have a great working relationship there. I think this is a bill that in concept we can actually very much support. It seeks to rehabilitate some stream gauges throughout the state and to install new stream gauges throughout the state as well. And that's going to be useful to our members who are concerned, for instance, about the accuracy of the drought monitor. If we have more stream gauges, the information that goes into that drought monitor can be better. Likewise, it can improve the information we're using for purposes of curtailment. We can have more accurate data to demonstrate whether or not a curtailment is in fact necessary. So I think this is conceptually something we can get behind. Here's my concern on it. It would cost many millions of dollars. And if that money does not come out of the general fund, if it is appropriated instead from the water fund, for instance, it's always my concern that if we are increasing the financial burden on the State Water Resources Control Board, they will put that back on water rights holders like our members in the form of water rights fees. So my main concern with SB 361 will just be making sure there are not unintended consequences of down the road, increasing water rights fees. Lots of water legislation that we're going to be watching. And like Kirk said, that is a very early update, but stay tuned for more updates on that, both in our magazine, Hot Irons, all the news that we put out to you. Another issue that maybe isn't talked about as much as water in California, but has gained popularity just in the general conversations and media throughout the day is methane emissions from cattle. Um, it's something I monitor in the news every day. Thankfully, we haven't seen as many bills on this as water. However, this year, 
there are going to be some conversations happening on that in the legislature. What do we know about the bills related to methane emissions in cattle so far, Kirk? Yeah, so we don't have a lot of details on these bills. Uh, I mentioned at the top that there are several pieces of legislation that right now are simply intent bills stating the intent of the legislature, for instance, to adopt subsequent legislation, in this case, relating to methane emissions. There are plenty of spot bills, which just make non-substantive changes and can be amended later to become substantive bills. Right now, we see a number of spot bills and intent bills related to methane emissions. So we don't know specifically what those statutory concepts are going to be, what those legislative concepts are going to be. But we know that the legislature is considering methane emission legislation, particularly for enteric fermentation or cow burps. We've been talking with some of the author's offices, so we kind of have a sense of where this might go. But again, nothing is set in in, in legislative language yet. What I can tell our members is we are committed at the California Cattlemen's Association to making sure there is no additional onerous regulation of enteric fermentation, methane emissions from cattle, particularly on range cattle. I don't think that makes sense given the state of existing research. But the bottom line is back in 2016, in what was then Senate Bill 1383, we were able to get some protections for potential regulation of enteric fermentation. Specifically, any regulation had to be incentive-based and CARB could not, the California Air Resources Board, I should clarify, could not impose regulations on enteric fermentation methane emissions unless they had determined that technology existed that was cost-effective, wouldn't impact animal productivity, and was scientifically proven not to impact animal health. We are committed to making sure that those provisions that we secured that safeguard our industry back in 2016 will not be in any way diminished or abrogated this year. That's an important note. And I think it'll be interesting to watch this based on if you've been following what's happening in New Zealand. There's a push for a similar methane tax on cattle quite aggressive. But I think coming off of that, I've already read an article that was kind of relating this bill to that as Kirk. And I've said multiple times it's early, so hard to really know if that's going to come into play. But that's something definitely to watch. Let's touch on one more bill of concern before we move on to a few positive ones to end on. And this bill is coming from the Animal Legal Defense Fund. So what do we know about this, Kirk, and why are we watching it? Existing law allows a Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or an SPCA, to proffer a complaint to a magistrate judge anytime there is a violation of California's animal abuse statutes, right? So essentially, if an SPCA humane officer has determined that a cat or a dog is being abused, that a kennel is abusing animals, or even in the livestock industry that some bad actor is doing something they ought not to do, uh, they can bring a complaint before a magistrate judge, and if there is sufficient evidence to prosecute, that individual will be prosecuted in criminal court under existing statute, under the existing uh, animal rights legislation in California. And I want to be really clear at the front here, CCA has very strong policy in support of proper animal welfare and handling. We support the prosecution of individuals who are bad actors and are intentionally harming their livestock. I want to be very clear about that. I don't want that to get lost in this conversation. Absolutely. What this legislation would do, Assembly Bill 554 by Assemblymember Gabriel, is it would allow for a humane officer to instead bring that complaint in civil court. And I have a number of concerns about that. One is just, if we're moving to civil court, the burden of proof has been removed from beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the criminal burden, 
to a preponderance of the evidence. So more likely than not. Now, there are many reasons that, you know, something may not be prosecuted in the criminal court after a complaint is preferred by a humane officer. Perhaps there isn't sufficient evidence that a crime has been committed. The prosecutors aren't certain they can actually obtain a conviction, or they just determine that the complaint that was made actually isn't likely to be a violation of the animal abuse statutes at all. There are several reasons why someone might may decline to prosecute. My concern here is, A, it makes it more likely that someone will be found to have done wrong under the statutes because that burden of proof is diminished. But my much more significant concern is I think this is very ripe for abuse by radical environmental rights activists. Now, they would have to qualify as an SPCA. They would have to qualify someone to be certified as a humane officer. But I could see any number of groups bringing forth frivolous lawsuits in the civil courts and harming well-meaning and, and well-acting livestock producers' reputations in court. It could be sue and settlement shakedowns in court where, in fact, they never intend to actually bring something through the judicial process but are trying to shake down ranchers for money because, of course, a lot of these organizations are deep-pocketed and ranchers aren't always. <laughs> so uh, this is a bill that I simply see as well-intended, perhaps, but ripe for abuse. And what particularly raises my concern here is the sponsor is the Animal Legal Defense Fund. They have tried on numerous occasions to bring causes of action in civil court when the courts have declined to prosecute criminally. Every time the courts have said, you do not have a private right of action under the statute to bring this case. So essentially, what Animal Legal Defense Fund is seeking to do with this bill is just make it easier for them as an organization dedicated to suing on behalf of animals to make it easier for them to sue on behalf of animals. It's a very self-serving piece of legislation. And it's partly because of that sponsor that I am concerned about the likelihood for abuse of this bill. I think there is definite concern with that bill, as you noted, just coming from the sponsor. Something else I wanted to point out in the beginning of the podcast and just remind you is we had Jason Bryant, our contract lobbyist, on the podcast last year talking about how large this incoming class of freshmen is. I think there's about 40. Don't quote me on that. But I know there's dozens of new legislators in the Capitol building. So making the connections with them is going to be really important, especially on bills like this. And definitely going to be a little time-consuming task for you, I'm sure, Moving on to a positive bill, something we hear about a lot is the shortage of veterinarians in rural areas. Specifically, there's a huge shortage of large animal vets. So I know there's a bill kind of related to that. What what do you know about that so far? Yeah, so there, there are several pieces of legislation this year, I want to be clear with our members, that we are likely to support. There's a lot of good ideas out there in the legislature, uh, and we are likely to support a number of bills. I always like to tee up the concerns a little more than I like to tee up uh, the things that look good. Yeah, uh, the drama. So, <laughs> precisely. So just because you've heard me refer to a bunch of bills that we have concerns about, that doesn't mean it's all bad news at the California legislature. There are several bills that I think we are likely to support. I'm only going to tee up one of those. But again, I, I, I would urge our members to read our hot irons, to read our uh, California Cattlemen magazine. You'll get more details also on the good bills in those publications. Uh, but one bill that I think is very promising this year is Assembly Bill 1237. And what that bill seeks to do is someone who has finished their veterinary education can contract with the Student Aid Commission if this bill becomes law. And if they agree to practice in a rural area as defined under California law, or if they agree to 
provide veterinary care services in an area of need as defined by USDA's National Institute for Food and Agriculture, which, by the way, includes most of California, especially for uh, commercial livestock production veterinary needs, then that individual is eligible for upwards of $150,000 in student debt relief, assuming that they meet all of the qualifications and actually, you know, finish through their practice in those rural or areas of need. That is extremely encouraging to us. Uh, We hear from our members all the time about the needs in their country for especially live uh, large animal veterinarians. So I think this is a bill that would really incentivize folks who have gone through that training to actually get out where they are needed and provide those veterinary services. So this is one, again, we haven't positioned on it yet just because it's very early in the session, but it's very encouraging and I'm looking forward to seeing where this one goes. Yeah, it could definitely be an exciting one to watch and something that we could celebrate hopefully. All that said, Kirk, I know you're already reaching out to legislative offices today. We were talking about it this morning and already doing a lot of work to find out more about these get fact sheets on them. So unless you have any other bills or comments on this legislative session so far, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Yeah, I do have just one final note. You know, today I've talked about maybe a half dozen bills. We're tracking 75 or more, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, If folks have questions about bills that we may be tracking or if they're concerned that we are not tracking legislation, I would just say give me a call at the CCA office. Worst case scenario, I can allay your concerns and tell you we're already focused on certain bills. But worst case, well, (laughs) worst case scenario for me is you may raise a bill that isn't entirely on my radar for one reason or another. Uh, We had that happen last year with a bill that our then second vice president, Trevor Freitas, brought to my attention. We were able to kill that bill, but it hadn't been on my radar until he brought it up. Just because, again, with 2,600 bills, something is likely to slip through the cracks. Uh, You may know our first vice president, Rick Roberti. He contacted me on a bill, Assembly Bill 99, that I don't actually think will be impactful to his county. But he had some concerns about that bill, and we were able to talk through it. And I am now tracking it, even though I don't think there will be impacts on our industry. So I would just urge anyone listening to this who is a CCA member, if there are bills you didn't hear about today that you have concerns about, go ahead and give me a call. We'll talk through it. Absolutely. That's why we're here. You should not be losing sleep over something that we can easily look up and find more details. And like Kirk said, he's probably already tracking it and aware of it. But we always appreciate engagement and would prefer to hear from our members as often as possible because we are a membership driven organization. Thanks for making time for this today, Kirk. I know that we'll have more podcasts with you to come with more details as this session continues, but I think this was a great start. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening and hope to see you at a local tour meeting. March is a little bit wild. CCA is going to be on the road a lot. So hope to see you there. And if you see Kirk there, Billy there, any of the team there, be sure to ask questions on any of these bills or any other local issues that you're having. We want to hear about those as well. We don't want to just be in our little silo in Sacramento. Please feel free to let us know what's keeping you up at night. And until then, don't miss our new episode in two weeks as CDFA Secretary Karen Ross is going to be our guest for an exclusive interview all about what she thinks about ranching in California, what she thinks it's going to look like in the future, and what CDFA is working on right now related to the cattle ranching community. So talk to you then.